So if you would, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11. We will tackle all of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12. But in our reading, I'm going to read some, summarize some, and read more, summarize more, and so forth. So you've got to just stay with me on this. Okay? So out of reverence for God's Word as it is read and summarized, please join me in standing. Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11 is working out the last sentence of verse 10, where the people covenanted together and said, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived in his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And then it goes through and begins to list them. Of the sons of Judah, these are the ones that moved into the city. Of the sons of Benjamin, these moved into the city. Verse 10 of the priests, of the Levites, verse 15. And then verse 19, the gatekeepers. Though, verse 20, the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were all in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. And then verse 22, there were the overseers of the Levites that moved into Jerusalem. And then verses 25 through 36 just lays out more of those who lived in their villages and the fields and so on. Then we come to chapter 12, and in chapter 12 you have three different time frames. You have something from 100 years before, another influx of exiles returning about halfway through or somewhere in there, and then just before Nehemiah came. So verse 1, these are the priests and Levites who came with Zerubbabel. That was over 100 years before. Then verse 12, in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses. That was another flow, influx of expats or, or exiles. And then verse 22, in the days of Eliashib came these folks. And it just keeps on listing them as they came in different waves. And so verse 26, these were in the days of Jehoiakim, the sons of Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, the scribe. And then comes the magic moment, the dedication. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with lyres. So it tells you where they all came from. And then verse 30, uh, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Verse 31, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One of the choirs, one went to the south on the wall. And it mentions several of those who went that way, including at the very end of verse 36, Ezra the scribe who went before them. And then there was another choir, starting verse 38, that goes to the north. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people. And it lists the places they went and, and the, around the, 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 the wall and who was with them. And then this concluding statement, verse 43, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. 
So what I've read for you and what I have poorly summarized for you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord, for your steadfast love and faithfulness that endures forever. May we become more aware of your steadfast love and faithfulness, even in the middle of the ordinary and the normal. Amen. You may be seated. So keep, you'll keep your Bibles open there to Nehemiah 11 and 12. The sermon notes are also on the back of the worship guide, the sermon outline, really. So when we were living in Midland, Texas, we were at a church in Midland, Texas. And in 2011, our congregation in Midland, I believe that's the year, our congregation in Midland purchased the Episcopal Church, the Episcopal Church building that we had been renting a portion of for many years, uh, for many years, like nine years or something like that, um, quite a while. But we finally purchased the building in 2011. And there's a lot to that purchasing story that is laughable now. It wasn't laughable then, it was rather hair-raising. Jerry probably remembers some of this. We almost lost the building because we totally misunderstood the offer and it was a terrible dance. It was horrible. But in the end, we obtained the building and went down to the title office downtown and paid the cash signed a zillion copies, and then walked away with the deed. We had a deed in hand. It was wonderful. A month or so later, we did something that was very important. We did a building dedication service. It was beautiful. It was involved. And it was filled with loads of thank yous to God for His multiple kindnesses to us over the years that had culminated in that moment. It wasn't a building dedication like we're going to dedicate this building to Jesus because now it's been possessed by demons before. No, it's already been dedicated before. We were simply doing a dedication of thank yous because we were so delighted. We finally had our own building. And that what God had done to bring about that building was beautiful. So it was a great service. Well, that's why Nehemiah 11 and 12 are so significant. They're really kind of the climax of the story, right? All of this from Nehemiah 1 to the end of Nehemiah 12 happens within one calendar year, and it happened happened significantly. I mean, they built the walls in 52 days as unskilled laborers. You could tell that God was involved in all that. And so now they do the final thing. They're going to climax in a dedication service and give thanks to God. And so... This evening, we will see how God's people move in, move on, and move up. So we're going to move in, move on, and move up. So here we go. Chapter 11 is moving in. As part, remember the context here, as part of the ongoing covenant renewal season of the seventh month. This all began clear back in chapter 8 when they began to celebrate all the different festivals of the seventh month. We talked about that some weeks back. And then in chapter 9, they decide to do a whole different season of covenant renewal on the seventh, in the seventh month. It was more than the, what was required, and it was a very significant, a very important season. So it's in the seventh month. They're still in the middle of this covenant renewal season of the seventh month. It included, remember, chapter 9, it included this, included this long, extended confession of their sins. And then in chapter 10, if you'll remember, it included then their repentant repentant actions of renewed faithfulness. 
Pastor West was exactly right when he said that repentance is not just about feeling sorry. There has to be action to go with it. And that's what you see, chapter 9, chapter 10, and now chapter 11. It's part of that covenant renewal and repentance. Here comes in chapter 11 the tithing of the people. The tithing of the people. They're going to tithe so one-tenth of the people are going to be selected to move into the city. Up to that moment, only some of the leaders had lived in Jerusalem. So imagine a vast city that's been destroyed, right? Remember, that's, that's what happened with the Babylonian exile. They wiped out, they destroyed the city, and the people come back in these waves over a hundred years, and there's all this rubble and all this debris everywhere. The only thing that's really been rebuilt is the temple that happened a hundred years before, and some of the homes, but the rest of it is just... It's just trashed, right? A day, day in a day out reminder of their hot mess. And it's vacant. It's a ghost town. Have you ever been into a ghost town? You know, maybe where like there's just two families in the town and everything else is all boarded up. I mean, it's really kind of freaky, right? So it's a ghost town and it's been that way for quite some time. And, and, um, and so if you go clear back to chapter 7, verse 4, verse 73, just listen, I'll read these, but You might want to write these down. Chapter 7, verse 4 and verse 73. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So the vast majority of everybody lived outside of town. Uh, I remember when we were stationed at uh, Chanute Air Force Base in Rantoul, Illinois, there had been a scare some years before that the Air Force was going to close the base down, which they eventually did. And people ran. They just, they just deserted their businesses. They deserted their homes, and they left. And it was like there were large sections where there was nobody. You'd walk down the street, and there was just trash and stuff blowing because there was nobody around can only imagine what Rantoul looks like now. Hopefully they're able to get back on their feet. But that was Jerusalem. There was almost nobody living there. And so notice then that the remainder of the chapter is the tithing of the people. It's a cataloging the family groups that moved into the city without shaming those who lived in the villages. They're also known. It's okay for them to live in the villages. Both groups of people are doing the Lord's work. You'll notice that in chapter 11. Nobody is shamed for either being in the city or being in the village. Right? Everybody is necessary as part of the restoration and the renewal of God's people. Those in the city actually need the people to live in the village because who do you think is going to grow all the food and bring it into the market, right? Inside of Jerusalem. Everybody's needed, but these in the city were especially commissioned to be there as part of the blossoming of the city, but also to be around the temple. To be around the, the temple that had been built, and now the walls were around it. They're there somewhat, in a sense, as protection, so that the temple is not deserted through the week or through, through whatever. And so they're, they're there. They have a very important role to play. And so that's really chapter 11 and what it's doing. All of this is fleshing out the last sentence of chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. 
The tithing of the people was their willingness to make sure the temple in the holy city was not neglected. Okay, does that make sense? That's the whole point. Okay. So as we think about chapter 11, three thoughts here. First off, notice that God's promises are being fulfilled. Such as the promise that He said clear back in Jeremiah 29, which was like 200 years or 150 years before, when the Lord said to the exiles, the Jewish, the, 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 the people of Israel, the exiles, He said to them, He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. God is fulfilling His promise. He's bringing it about. So there's the first thing. We need to see that. Secondly, I want you to notice that God's, and we, we, we just need to have this in our heads and in our hearts. We see what's going on here is that God's kingdom program, God's kingdom program can walk forward and most often does walk forward slowly. It walks forward unglamorously and it walks forward simply through the normal and the ordinary. Notice that God didn't just open the heavens up and just restore Jerusalem. Whammo, it's done. Right? There was lots of activity, just normal, ordinary things that had to happen for it to be restored. And God's kingdom program usually follows that path. We need to get that in our heads. For some reason, we think that everything should happen miraculously. And God uses... Almost always, the normal, ordinary, boring stuff. Okay? So, um, though uh, they, uh, God did all of this through the planning. Remember, Nehemiah had a lot of plans. He worked them out. Uh, through the planning, through the sweat. Can you imagine build, rebuilding the wall? There was a lot of sweat and calluses and nicked fingers. I mean, I've got a black thumb where I smashed it into something. I'm sure there were a lot of black thumbs during all of that, Right? through all the cleaning, through all the dust and the dirt, through the organizing and through the celebration and so forth. Very rarely does God's kingdom program need the spectacular and spiffy. If you ever have time, I would challenge you to do this sometime. Draw out a timeline of the Old Testament. Just start, oh, with Moses. We'll start with the 1440s. Just start with Moses and go all the way to the coming of Jesus. And then as you do that, start listing all the miraculous things that happened and when they happened. And what you begin to notice is that when they happened, there were very few. And secondly, there are huge eras of nothing miraculous happening through most of the time. And when you put it together, you finally realize, wow, God doesn't have to and He doesn't need to do snazzy, spiffy things all the time. He just calls us to ordinary faithfulness. He'll take care of the other stuff. So it's rare, and we need to recognize that. Okay? All right. 
Number three, here in the restoration of Jerusalem and the people coming, coming, being tithed and moving in and so forth, we're actually getting a foretaste of the picture of Revelation, what, uh, what Alan read in Revelation 21 and even 22, where the, the holy city Jerusalem comes to earth and is established, and here come the people of God all gathered there in fellowship. You're getting a foretaste, a little bit of that, here. And so as it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then later towards the end of chapter 21 of Revelation, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So notice the tithing of these people are actually being cataloged. They're being written. These are the citizens of this. So all of this is a foretaste of that great day that you see in Revelation 21 and 22. So that's moving in. And all of this then is tied into their moving on. And here we begin in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. Chapter 12, 1 through 26. Notice, once more, in chapter 12, we're up against a bunch of names upon names upon names, which can become mind-numbing for us in the 21st century. But there's a structure here, and there's a sensibleness to these names that is meant to bring us to lift up our eyes and lift up our hearts and to lift up our hands and our voices in Godward celebration. So to begin with, this is still very much to do with that last sentence of chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. So here's the structure. The structure reaches back about a hundred years in this list of names. It starts out there in verse 1, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel and Jeshua, and it lists those, this name. Here's the first inflow of those exiles returning. And you remember what they did, that through them God uh, laid the fa- had them lay the foundation of the temple and they established, reestablished the temple. That was a hundred years before. That's the first influx. Then comes the second influx of returned exiles. Um, and it's... Uh, and it's down in verse 12. And in the days of Jehoiakim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, etc. And it just starts listing them out. And then it moves on to the days just before Nehemiah and just after Nehemiah. So that kind of that time span in there. And you see that in verse 22 and then verse 26. In the days of Eliashib, Joada, Jehoanan, Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. In that moment, he's kind of going back to a hundred years before. So he's going back and forth. And then verse 26, these were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe. All I want you to get is the structure, is this didn't all happen at once. This is a hundred year period that he's recording. Does that make sense? It's a hundred year period. He's highlighting when these exiles returned and under whose leadership they returned, 
and came in. And that's extremely important. The structure uh, of the catalog of names leads then to its sensibleness. God had promised through Jeremiah, He had promised through Daniel, He had promised through Ezekiel, He had promised through many others that He would bring back His people to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. He had promised. And now it's being fulfilled. I already mentioned this, but it's worth looking at again because it keeps, it's coming back again in chapter 12. He promised, and so what did He do? He sent the early exiles, and He sent them His support by way of the prophets Haggai and Zephaniah. And then later, towards the end of this hundred years, He sends more back, and He sends them more support. He sends them Ezra the scholarly scribe. Slowly, methodically, multi-generationally. This is the point. Uh, Slowly, methodically, multi-generationally, God stayed consistent and stayed persistent in fulfilling His promise through all of the plotting and the normality of the day in and day out human ups and downs. The rebuilding after a hot mess was punctuated, especially as we see here in Nehemiah, early on in Nehemiah, was punctuated with other significant but smaller hot messes. God never promises us a rose garden, the song says, right? Right? Never promised me a rose garden. Oh, sorry. I just tripped off there a minute. Right? So God never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us a, a pain-free life. But He did promise to help them to rebuild after a hot mess, and there were other hot messes that they still overcame as they were rebuilding Uh, after the major hot mess. And it happened over a long period of time, a hundred years. That's kind of the significance of that. And so God patiently and doggedly aided them in rebuilding after their hot mess. He did this in seasons. He did this sending them leaders who later led them in putting their money where their mouth was, so to speak, by stirring up the spirit of the people at the precise moments. So Haggai chapter 1.14, talking about the rebuilding of the temple a hundred years before. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And then many years later, almost a hundred years later, he sends them other leaders who simply recall them back to covenant loyalty, like Ezra, who 12 years before Nehemiah had this covenant renewal ceremony in Ezra 7 through 10 to get them to actually begin them rethinking about who they were, whose they were, and why they were. The point, my friends, Sorry, I'm going to be a Johnny one point on this. But the point is less to do with the snazzy, fancy, whiz-bang things that the people did or uh, didn't consistently do. The point is that God remains steadfast and steady in His kingdom program. And He plods. And He brings us along to plod with Him. 
There was a fellow who was a, a radio preacher. Some of you will remember him from Back to the Bible, Warren Wearsby. Does anybody remember that name, Warren Wearsby? I love his little commentaries. I don't always agree with him, but he was a great writer, and he's, I think he's still alive. But anyways, um, he wrote a book, and I meant to bring it in here, but he wrote a book that I often encourage fellow ministers to read. And I make them read it. I make them, if they're under my, any, under my thumb, I make them read it. Wes can tell you that, right? Yes, thank you. By the way, if you ever want a book to give to a minister somewhere, I highly recommend this one. It's a very small one. It's about 120 pages. It's called In Praise of Plotters. What a great title. In Praise of Plotters. P-L-O-D-D-E-R-S. Okay? Plotters. Okay? What, what Warren Wiersbe is doing is he's talking to the majority of ministers who never see any, quote, success, end of quote, in their ministry as our business-minded religious gurus define success. Okay? So success in America, 21st century, and not just America, but in the West, is big churches with thousands of people, large campuses doing bazillions of things, and most ministers don't have the brain power to do that kind of ministry. I'm just going to tell you. I'm not saying anything bad about them, about those kind of ministries. It's just impossible for most of us to do that much. There's too many working parts. There are only a few people, a handful of people, have that skill. Most of the rest of the ministers, and this is statistically true, most of the rest of the ministers, over 80% of the churches in the U.S. are 500 and less and don't have large facilities. They're plodding along and they're never praised for success because they don't make, fit the glitzy uh, criteria that most people have. And so what Wearsby is doing is he is encouraging, he is encouraging uh, simple, persistent faithfulness as God's agenda. And he writes to just normal ministers. And so he says things like this. Uh, the normal faithful minister walks and works by faith and leaves the consequences with God. And later he will write, the important thing is that we seek God's power not for the purpose of ministerial success, but for the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ and building His church. It's a great statement. The point is, plotting is normal. And God normally works through that plotting and has a persistent, dogged, faithfulness. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to earn. Scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. God moves in a mysterious way. Uh, William Cooper wrote that in the 1700s. And so, my friends, Nehemiah 12, 1-26 is a reminder of that very principle. That as we look around to our own hot messes, all the dusty, devastated rubble and debris of our hot mess, and we realize we need to start building. And so what do we do? It's plotting. Plotting along, forward, onward, in simple, though at times strenuous, fidelity. You know, if you ever run a half marathon, I ran, I loved, uh, well, I didn't love it, but um, I didn't love the, the end of it, when I, that I got to the end. Derek and I ran a half marathon at Tinker Air Force Base for its 75th anniversary, 13.1 miles. Gee, what 
was wrong with me? But the way you make that distance is you plod, right? One foot in front of the other while your body is doing what? What do you think your body is doing? My body was going, you fool, right? But you make it because you're plodding. Only a few people can sprint that distance. The rest of us are plodding, right? It's the same kind of thing. So we're so. And what we find is as we just keep on going forward, moving on, plodding along forward, onward in simple fidelity, we're surprised that in it all, God is actually working. That's really the big point there. All right. So this then, this moving on then sets them back onto the track of moving up. And it's chapter 12, verses 27 through 47. Now comes the climactic moment where they dedicate the walls, the walls that they had spent 52 days rebuilding, and it's going to be a big shindig. Processions, singing, harps, lyres, cymbals, and the whole dog and pony show, as we used to say in the military. And all of this is confirming their ambition. Chapter 10, the last sentence, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so Nehemiah divides the worship leaders and the people into two groups. One cluster goes with Ezra around the the south wall, verses 31 through 37. The other team goes along on the north wall with Nehemiah following. I find that interesting. Ezra is is commissioned to lead one group. Nehemiah, who's who's not a religious leader, just follows the other group. It's interesting. I wonder... What was going on there? But that was just sticks in my head. And so notice it's a noisy celebration. It's, a, it's, a, it's just filled with uh, activity to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres. Then I brought the leaders up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs to give thanks. And the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. That was verse 27, 31, and 38. God's persistent, dogged faithfulness in rebuilding after a hot mess brings God's people to move up in adoration, in praise, and in worship. Through Ezra and then later through Nehemiah, God was, has been seeking the welfare of His people, bringing them relief and stability, lifting their hearts in greater hope, and they can't help but rejoice. In fact, Verse 43 might actually be the centerpiece of Nehemiah. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now why is that last sentence so important? Because what's going on far away? Who can hear them? Go back to chapter 6 and earlier. Tobiah. Sanballat, Geshem the Arab, who have been opposed to them the whole time. Remember this? They have been sabotaging them. They've been undermining them this whole time. They do not want to see God's people, their welfare, uh, uh, prosper, right? And so they can't stand it. So guess who gets needled? They heard this rejoicing far away. I love it. I think that's intentional. It's very likely verse 43 is the centerpiece of Nehemiah. And dear friends, I, I think that's what we need to have in our hearts as we think about worship. That 
that loud celebratory worship. It's okay as Presbyterians. We can be loud, okay? To do so for the purpose of what? To celebrate God's goodness in the midst of all of our hot messes and how He has persisted in being with us and, and been faithful to us, but also so that the joy of Jerusalem is heard far away. But as they're walking around the wall, remember what they're still seeing as they look down in the city. There's still rubble lying down there. There's still a lot more rebuilding that needs to be done. There's still more work that needs to be done. But they can celebrate. The people of God cannot help themselves. It's clear to this once dispirited people that God has not left them, that God has not passed them by, that God has not disowned them, even though they felt like it. He didn't. It may have felt that way when they were in the moment, but now they can see more clearly and it causes them to move up and rejoice in the God who has sought and strengthened their welfare. And so then the next paragraph, the very last paragraph of chapter 12, and probably jumping into the very first paragraph of chapter 13, shows that this moving up continued for some time after the dedication, probably, uh, probably a summarization of the next year or something like that. I don't know, because Nehemiah is going to leave and will be gone. His, his reign there, his governorship is 12 years, and we only have chronicled the first year and then the end of chapter, the last two-thirds of chapter 13 is him returning at the twelfth year. So I think chapter 12, verses 44 through 47, and probably chapter 13, 1 through 3, are a summary of what happened after the dedication for some time. How long? I don't know. But they continue um, giving thanks, uh, fulfilling their we will not neglect the house of our God. And that's how it's uh, what's laid out there, verses 44 through 47, how they, they supported the Levites and the priests and, and all these things. So wherever verses 44 through 47 fits in the timeline of Nehemiah's memoirs, they're meant to exhibit how the people persisted in their fidelity to God's house, the same with the very first paragraph of chapter 13, possibly. And so let me end. Brothers, sisters, keep in mind, keep Nehemiah in mind. Simple, plodding, ordinary, unglitzy, unglamorous fidelity is the norm. One foot in front of the other, moving along inward, outward, and upward. It's okay. Part of our problem in America is that we have made an idol out of the glitzy, glamorous, and then we feel like we're not good Christians or we're not doing what we're supposed to because we didn't do the fancy stuff. Right? That's the rare. The ordinary stuff is the ordinary stuff. And God loves it. And He works through that. If, you don't, if nothing else, just remember chapter 12. A hundred years, God was faithful and they just plotted on. Right? It's beautiful. If it doesn't ring your bell, it rings my bell. But also, don't disregard their aim. We will not neglect the house of our God to rebuild after a hot mess, whatever your hot mess is, to rebuild after a hot mess for the welfare of God's people includes the central ambition of God's house, God's worship, and God's honor. 
the central ambition, when we rebuild from a, after a hot mess, the ambition for the welfare of God's people must include God's house, God's worship, God's honor. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the memoirs of Nehemiah and how they encourage us. Help us, Lord, I hope that we are encouraged. Help us to rejoice in how the ordinary, you're right there in the ordinary, praise the Lord. And so help us to be faithful, persistent in our faithfulness. Because we are enamored by your persistent, dogged faithfulness. So Lord, watch over us this week, bless us this week, may some snippet from this passage, chapter Nehemiah 11 and 12, come back to us. And Lord, I pray, here, especially with us here at this church, that as we worship you week after week, may the joy of Jerusalem be heard far away. In Jesus' name.